Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well-being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Johnny, a biopsychology student and meditation intern at UCSB, will join me in interviewing a special guest, Dr. Michael Morazic, the co-founder of UCSB's Center for Mindfulness and Human Potential, as well as a research associate professor at UT Austin. He has published more than 40 peer-reviewed scientific papers and is the author of Presence of Mind, a practical introduction to mindfulness and meditation. I, I studied psychology as an undergrad. And I think even before then, I was always kind of a practical psychologist. I was always interested in understanding my mind and discovering ways to live a happier life. And I love the idea of being able to draw on all the tools of science to help me figure out the best ways to actually live a happy life. Um, And so, yeah, I studied psychology as an undergrad. And then I came to UCSB as a graduate student and I studied cognitive psychology in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, But a major focus of my research throughout that entire time was specifically on mindfulness and meditation and the various ways in which it can benefit folks. Um, And I've just continued with that ever since. So now I'm a professor at UT Austin where I continue to study mindfulness and meditation. That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And I know you spoke a little bit on uh, your practice already. Do you mind maybe elaborating a little bit on your personal experience um, with meditation and mindful and, and mindfulness? So I first got introduced to mindfulness when I was 16 and it was at a time uh, that was actually really difficult for me because my family decided to move halfway across the country right before my junior year of high school just after I had fallen in love for the first time. And I had this amazing group of friends and like my life had finally clicked. And then like that day, my parents were like, okay, we're going to move to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So it was a really difficult transition for me, but in retrospect, a perfect time to have been introduced to mindfulness because I was, I was like poised and ready to hear the message that all of the difficult emotions that I was experiencing weren't just a consequence of the things that were happening to me, but that I was actually playing more of a role in how I felt than I realized. And that where I was choosing to focus was really strongly influencing how I felt. And that was a little bit of a paradigm shift for me. And it it gave me a sense of being back in control of my mind and my experience at a time in my life when a lot of my life felt out of my control. So my first introduction to mindfulness was early and it was very empowering. And I've sort of gone on since then to explore a whole variety of different strategies for improving my well-being and my happiness, but I've never lost touch with that kind of original insight that attention is a really crucial factor in cultivating our emotional health. And So it's been a major focus of not only my career, but my life ever since. And I feel like still every single day of my life, I'm exploring as a student of mindfulness, how can I, how can I use my attention to find greater peace and joy and appreciation in this moment? 
Yeah, that's really awesome. I had a pretty similar experience of moving across the country and going through some family changes that brought mindfulness to me as well. So it's really cool that I can relate to that. I'm curious, like, it's great to hear about how this manifested for you personally and then turned into an academic and like career thing as well. And I'm curious, like, what you've spent most of your time focusing your research on, like, within the mindfulness fields. So as a graduate student, a big focus of my research was on using mindfulness training to try to reduce distraction and thereby improve performance. And maybe it's a little bit obvious in retrospect that mindfulness training might reduce how much people mind wander, but actually nobody had shown that using rigorous research. And so some of my early studies documented how mindfulness training could reduce mind wandering and improve focus in a way that then led people to perform better on all sorts of different types of tasks. And I think what was maybe most interesting and surprising about that research early in my career was that we found mindfulness training could lead to improvements on measures that people generally associate with intelligence. So things like IQ tests or working memory capacity tests, things that historically psychologists and most people have assumed are relatively fixed. Uh, But what we discovered is that how much people mind wander and get distracted during those tests is a really big predictor of how well they do on them. So if you can improve people's ability to focus, suddenly they're able to tap into this kind of latent intelligence, latent cognitive capacity that they had, but they weren't accessing because they were distracted. So that was a big chunk of graduate school and a a major focus of my research early on. Uh, But then I, I got really interested in what would be possible if you didn't only offer mindfulness training to somebody, but you combined it with a variety of other tools that would also be effective. Because I really wanted to understand how much could somebody improve their life in a short amount of time if you gave them all the right tools in the right context. And so we started running these studies at UCSB where we would recruit undergrads. And then in the summer, we would put them through this kind of boot camp of personal development, where we would do a ton of mindfulness and meditation but we would also help them improve their sleep and their exercise and their relationships and their self-regulation. And we did it as these randomized controlled studies. And we found these really remarkable improvements in how much somebody can actually change their life when they combine mindfulness with a variety of other tools that are kind of synergistic with them. So that was a big focus for me as sort of a postdoc and early on in my professional research career. And then more recently, a big focus for me has been on trying to understand how can you scale mindfulness training? How can you create digital evidence-based mindfulness training that is truly effective? And in particular, how do you do that for teens? Because uh, my sense is that they are an age group that's been a little bit neglected in terms of the development of really proven interventions that can help them with mindfulness. And so that's what our team is doing now, trying to find the best ways to bring mindfulness into schools to empower teens to have greater focus and emotional resilience. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm curious from your past experience with that research, where you see this field continuing to go as time goes on and we have more information about mindfulness and meditation and all of its benefits. So I think there's something a little a little funny about how mindfulness research has played out so far, where early on, and it's still an early field of study, 
early on, almost all of the research has been focused on documenting the benefits of mindfulness training, trying to figure out, is it effective? What is it effective for? And that's, that's natural. It's intuitive that that was where people started. But, you know, it, it occurred to me a while back that there could also be a whole science around how to teach mindfulness and meditation most effectively. And that in some sense, you might actually want to start there and actually develop the knowledge and the programs that deliver mindfulness in a way that can really be received, that resonates with most people, helps them along the path. And then once you have those training programs in place, you'll get a clearer picture of just how much mindfulness could really benefit them. Uh, but the whole field, it started instead with the research on just what are the benefits. And I think that there's a little bit of a shift, and I, I see this continuing in the future, of a greater focus on how can we use scientific tools to understand the best ways to teach mindfulness, to train mindfulness, instead of just trying to document the benefits. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hear a lot of people talk about not understanding meditation, especially because it's like they don't have the attention span to sit down and like just breathe and they're like, it doesn't work for them. So that's really cool to see that there could be other ways that are more evidence-based, scientifically backed up that could work for people that maybe don't enjoy that form of mindfulness. I think that's a good point that there's not going to be one cookie cutter way of introducing it that's going to be best for everybody. And so in, in the course that we've been developing over the last several years, we are seeking ways to really personalize the training to each individual person to make it something that connects with them and their challenges and their interests. And that's not an easy thing to do, but I do think that's another trend for where the training will go, that everybody will get a version of the mindfulness training that aligns with their needs and their interests. That's really cool. Um, I have another question, but this one's for those that don't know the difference between mindfulness and meditation. Um, I personally read your book, Presence of Mind. I absolutely loved it. I actually learned a lot more about mindfulness and actually that exact difference and kind of incorporated it when I was guiding it um, this morning at Morning Meditation. Uh, but for those that don't know the difference, could you go over the difference? Yeah. So the, the way that I think about it is that mindfulness is a set of tools for how you use attention to relate more skillfully to your moment by moment experience. And you can do that literally in any waking moment from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Mindfulness is a tool that you could apply. And meditation is when you set time aside with the sole purpose of really training your attention, increasing your mindfulness, practicing it in a specialized context, which then makes it easier to bring that mindfulness into the rest of your life. Um, so that's often how I think about it. Meditation isn't the only way to practice and develop mindfulness. You can make a ton of progress just by practicing mindfulness while you're walking to class, listening to a lecture, talking with friends. But because there's so much else going on in your daily life, it's especially towards the beginning, a little bit harder to stay present and keep practicing in daily life. So it's super useful to have a little bit of time every day where that's the only thing that you have to do. Uh, and then over time, the two work really well together. So your mindfulness in daily life prepares you to have a more enriching and rewarding meditation experience. And then those meditations also prepare you to go back into your daily life with a continuity of mindfulness that can then affect your relationships and your work and everything else. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, 
I know this has a lot, mindfulness in particular has a lot um, in present moment awareness meditation as well as open monitoring. Could you go over some different meditations briefly? Yes. So I think that there are at least three major categories of meditation uh, that scientists often distinguish from one another. One of them are focused attention meditations, and this could include something like focusing on your breath or focusing on just staying in the present moment without getting lost in thoughts of the past or the future. And those focused attention meditations are used to improve our ability to focus, uh, but not just that. And then I think maybe even more importantly, they're training our ability to let go and to release all of the other things that are competing for our attention so we can break the habitual tendency we have to get caught in trains of thought or to get pulled away into distraction. So we're training our ability to focus, but even more than that, we're training our ability to let go of the things that aren't serving us or the distractions that we don't want to follow. So that's one really primary type, and I think a great place for most folks to start. Another category of meditation is when you're trying to cultivate specific emotional experiences. And two of these that are, I think are quite common are gratitude meditations or loving kindness meditations. Mm -hmm. In a sense here, you're also focusing your mind because you're directing it to the thoughts and the memories that actually will bring forward those emotions. But a key aim is to really fill your current experience with the emotion of gratitude or the feeling of loving kindness. And those serve a variety of purposes, but they can help kind of balance the mind and um, help us access those qualities during meditation so we can bring them more into our daily life. And then there's a third category, you reference something called open monitoring. There's a third category of meditation that's more about just witnessing and observing our experience without actually directly interfering or changing it. And uh, historically, these, these practices sometimes called open monitoring, open awareness, choiceless awareness have been considered more advanced practices. And these days, sometimes people get introduced to them right away. But my personal take is that they, they are a little bit more nuanced. Uh, to understand what it means to observe experience without really trying to influence it or change it. But they can be extremely helpful too, both for giving us a much greater familiarity with how the mind works and also helping us kind of drop down into uh, an inherent piece of mind that uh, is sort of independent of whatever happens to be floating by on the surface of our experience. And I know that might sound a little bit esoteric or in the weeds, but uh, it is an interesting practice that I think is worth exploring once you have a little bit of time under your belt with uh, the other two that I mentioned. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, people will ask me sometimes, someone actually asked me this morning uh, where they can start um, because typically at the morning meditations, we do them outside, it's loud. So I tend to do a present moment awareness where they can just kind of let things simmer in, um, let their focus kind of sit on different things. And then if their focus moves, it's really just about the practice. And I typically tell them that same answer, but thank you so much for elaborating on that. I was reading about this in your book, and I feel like it relates to the different kinds of meditation. Um, finding this balance of 
being like aware of your outside experiences as well as your inner emotions and experiences and accepting those and like understanding them, but also knowing like when sometimes you need to change your attention or become more positive and maybe move to like, if you're in a really negative space, when do you decide to go into more of a gratitude practice or focus on something that is more positive in your life? I think that's a really important question. And one that has a lot of nuance to it, we could probably talk about it for a long time. Yeah. I think, uh, in, in my own life, right now i often find myself that when an um an emotion is swelling up that before i do anything to try to change it or manipulate it i like to take a little bit of time to just be willing to actually experience it and i try to do that for long enough to achieve at least a couple things first to actually be in touch with how i genuinely feel uh, which you know, sometimes takes a little bit of time and attention to understand what's bubbling up in us and how we really feel about something. But then also to have enough time to remember that I'm not in conflict with my emotions and that there's a part of me that is actually fundamentally okay, even in the midst of experiencing a difficult emotion. And so I practice willingness to experience the emotion for long enough to be able to resurface those recognitions in my own mind. Uh, and because I've been practicing for a long time, that doesn't necessarily take a lot of time to achieve that. Maybe in some instances, it's only 10 or 15 seconds. Um, but regardless, I, I try to do that before then I change my experience. But, you know, we all have busy lives. We have a lot of stuff going on. It's not always an ideal moment to just sit down and observe your emotions and explore them and identify what's causing them. Sometimes it's actually more effective and useful to redirect. And so, yeah, refocusing is a strategy of letting go of something in order to redirect your attention to something more worthwhile. And uh, I think that in my own experience, Oftentimes I find that balance by first practicing a little bit of willingness and then refocusing my attention to whatever really demands it. But I wouldn't want to imply that it always has to go in that sequence. And I think that there are times in our lives where you know, if you are taking a test or you're at work or you're really sleep deprived, it might not be the right time to practice willingness of a really difficult emotion. You might actually just have that backfire because it's not the right time. You don't have the right resources. And so that might be a, an opportunity for you to just refocus or practice a little gratitude in order to just stay, you know, with whatever is happening in that moment. And then later circle back to it when you, you are a little bit rested, you do have the time. Maybe you have a friend or a loved one who can be there to talk you through it. And then maybe you might return to the sort of practicing, just observing and being willing to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was such a helpful answer. Cause mm -hmm. that's something I definitely struggle with is trying to find that balance. You mentioned now it only takes you 10, 15 seconds to, you know, get to that point or to understand your emotion because you've been practicing for so long. So people that may be newer to this, like how do they kind of see that progress? Yeah. The, the question of, of progress in mindfulness and meditation is a tricky one and it's completely natural to want to track how it's going so you can make adjustments and be sure you're on the right path. Um, but it's also 
a little bit risky to get too focused on that because the time course for how your practice will unfold is going to vary for every person. It's a little bit out of your control. What you can control is how consistently you're showing up to the practice and how genuinely you're engaging with it. So when people want to track progress in mindfulness or meditation, I usually say the most important thing to keep track of is when you're actually practicing, are you making a genuine, consistent, but gentle effort to really apply the tools and discover in your own experience how to work with your mind? Because it is so easy to sit down for a meditation and to you know, only kind of half do it because there's zero accountability. Nobody else can see what's happening inside of your head. And you have a million other things to think about or worry about. And so the most important thing I think is just to, to show up, to practice consistently, to practice genuinely, and then trust that if you're doing that, especially under the guidance of you know some instruction or some teacher who has your best interest at heart, and over time, the benefits are going to come and you don't have to worry too much about exactly when they do. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a beautiful answer, uh, especially the whole possibly finding a mentor or someone else to do it with you. I think that's really, really important. And that's why I absolutely love doing meditations in person, being able to talk to others, getting kind of a social connection, but also getting people to um, remind each other of exactly these things, you know, not to focus too much on the goals and on the progress. Uh, we could talk <laughs> for hours about this, but I was going to switch over to over back to you essentially, because um, some students will listen to this and would love to know more, to know more about you, uh, your research, and your other thoughts on meditation and mindfulness. Uh, that we couldn't cover today. Uh, what are some resources these students can access? One resource that would be helpful is you mentioned this book that I wrote with my sister Alyssa and my wife Kita. Uh, it's Presence of Mind, and it's a, a short, concise, and really detailed handbook on how to approach mindfulness and meditation. And I think it, it's a really good resource. I also remember when I was a college student, I was super thrifty and I wasn't just buying books that I didn't need to buy for my classes. So we do make that book freely available to students. And so anybody can go and download the ebook version of it. Maybe we can put the link in the, in the sh uh, show notes, but it's just empiricalwisdom.com slash free book. And any student can just go and instantly download uh, the, the copy of that. So I think that's a great place to start, but I actually want to circle back to what you were just saying about, the importance of practicing in community. Uh, you know, I think these days, 99 plus percent of people learn about mindfulness and meditation from an app. And I don't, I don't think apps are bad. I, for years, I've been developing my own app to teach mindfulness in high schools. But I also think about it as just a starting point, just a place to get a good introduction. And I think it's so crucial to connect with a teacher and with a community a teacher can make sure that you actually deeply understand the path and can overcome the specific obstacles that you're facing. And a community can help you actually stay with it because it's very common for people to practice a little bit of mindfulness and meditation, but then to lose the thread. And so I think that those are both crucially important. And it sounds like at UCSB, you are creating some awesome resources for that. 
One other that I'll just mention is that during the summer, my team and I, we do read something called the Summer Institute in Applied Psychology. And these are evidence-based retreats in Costa Rica that have a major focus on providing training in mindfulness and meditation, but also combine it with other factors like sleep and exercise. And uh, it's a really powerful experience and a good way to have an immersive experience with a community to deeply explore these ideas, to make sure that you're really getting them and to make sure that you're on the right path. So if folks are interested in that, they can learn more at empiricalwisdom.com. Yeah, those are such great resources. Thanks for sharing that. It's really great that it's free for students, especially with the book. I'm sure a lot of people would love to read that. I know that we have a lot of resources here and um, I host some like circles and stuff for people to come and do meditation together and then share how they feel and things like that. And it's a really great experience, but I know a lot of people will always be kind of hesitant. Like this seems out of my comfort zone or I'm, you know, I've had a really long day. Why would I make time for this? I could just go sleep. And they've gotten lots of, you know, responses and then people come and they do feel better afterwards, but it's like, sometimes it's hard to take that step. So do you kind of have any recommendations for students that might feel that way? Yeah, I think it's it's so easy to just do something independently alone on your phone that takes a couple minutes to get access. And by comparison, it's so hard to put yourself out there and show up at a meditation where you don't know anybody. And so it's natural that people feel that reluctance, especially these days where so much is available to us through our phones and through our devices. But I think that it's important to keep in mind that if these were changes that we could easily make ourselves by ourselves, we would have already done it. And that the big changes in our lives require getting exposed to new ideas and new people and new communities. And that's where the big shifts actually happen. So even though it's a hundred times easier to just download Headspace, it might be a hundred times more effective if you actually consistently show up to a mindfulness group. And maybe if you just keep reminding yourself of that, that can help cultivate that motivation to do the uncomfortable, difficult thing, because you know, in the long run, it's going to be what truly serves you. Yeah, thank you. That was such a great answer. Well, I think that's all the questions I have today. Do you have anything left? I just want to say thank you. Um, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to take away a lot of things from this conversation, um, also from your book. And um, I just want to say thank you for talking with us. Thank you both. I, I really appreciate all the work you're doing at UCSB. And it was a, a pleasure getting to speak with you.